We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In today's episode, we're bringing you a live recording from our Intelligent Times event series, which took place in collaboration with the New York Times. In this conversation, recorded in 2019, award-winning actor Willem Dafoe speaks to the New York Times European culture editor, Matthew Anderson. Together, they discuss Defoe's long and varied career, his approach to acting, and his understanding of the changing film industry. Part two of this event is available ad-free for subscribers now. And for our listeners who don't subscribe, part two will be available in our next episode. Thank you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, Willem, for joining us uh, this evening. Willem Dafoe, everyone knows him. He's done every conceivable type of picture. He's done superhero movies. He's done highbrow auteur numbers, Hollywood blockbusters, and experimental curios. And we all recognize that incredibly expressive face, but we also know the voice, which is um, voiced animation numbers and narrated documentaries as well. In more than 40 years, Willem, you have done more than 120 pictures and you've garnered four Oscar nominations. And that's not to mention the experimental theatre that you have done uh, with, um, with the Worcester Group. So getting ready for, the, for this interview, I was looking through uh, IMDb and looking at all of the roles that you've played. And you know, it ranges everything from uh, the Green Goblin in Spider-Man, uh, a pot-smoking Vietnam vet in Platoon, kindly manager of a flea pit hotel in the Florida Project, the voice of a cheeky rat in uh, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, and not to mention historical figures, Vincent van Gogh, Pierpaolo Pasolini, T.S. Eliot, and even Jesus of Nazareth. I was at a bit of a loss to <laughs> how, where could I find the through lines and how could I sort of draw it all together? And it's, it's certainly, it's a crazy collection. What's the method in your madness when you're choosing these roles? Ah, it's always different every time, uh, you know, and also you're talking about 40 years of working, so I've changed, my methods changed. But um, one of the things that's beautiful about working in the movies, or for that matter, working in the theater, is it is different every time because your job is slightly different, the approach has to be different, um, and who uh, your colleagues are uh, is different. And I like that. So it really gives you the opportunity to take different points of view and try out different things. Certainly there's certain things that, you know, you return to, and if they work for you, they tend to be safe places for you. But sometimes even those, you can't go to them given the nature of uh, 
what your expectation is. In that list, I'm not seeing a lot of safe places. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I get it, but I feel much more comfortable when I feel like I'm sticking my neck out than I'm doing something um, familiar. And I would probably say that, that the most difficult uh, roles to do for me are when I've gotten into a situation where I've really arrived at it and I'm not, um, I'm not, you know, you lose your curiosity or you think you know what it is and then you just execute. Uh, you just apply a kind of uh, technique to it. Um, I think it's often best to be a little off balance. Um, and if you get used to being off balance, that's a place of strength. And uh, that's, I try to find that place. I guess that would be the through line. I try to find that place where you're, you know, sometimes you have to trick yourself where you're curious, you're receptive, you're, you know, open to having an experience. It's not something you know. You're going towards something. You're trying to learn something. And then once you learn something, you have a shift of how you think and a new way of being is suggested. And if you're willing to apply that to another scenario that isn't your life, then that's when you start to feel, you know, flexible and feel like you're, uh, you know, being that character. One thing I did notice was there's a lot of very strong directors who have very mm. definite visions of what they want, recognizable visual styles or very um, particular ways of working. Uh, and I was thinking particularly about Wes Anderson and uh, David Lynch, some who you've worked with. Wes Anderson, you've done a lot of pictures mm -hmm. um, with. What is it about him that attracts you? His precision, uh, the fact that there's no one, you, you see a Wes Anderson movie and it's uh, his, his view of the world, or it's, it's got a very personal stamp on that. And I, I think I like that. I, I, when I see someone that has a very, very particular way of working or a particular way of looking at the world, I like attaching myself to them and going towards their mentality and trying to embody that, trying to help them do what they can't do because they're on the other side of the camera. Uh, it was Steve. So, um, like being an extension of them. That's those are the happiest situations because there's something about. I mean, this is suspicious because actors are, you know, notoriously egocentric. But you know, really, to free yourself, you have to get rid of yourself and attach yourself to something that's you've got to reach for, I think, and you've got to learn something, you've got to extend yourself. And when you have a strong director, your appetite for doing that is much stronger and you feel clear. Did you know his pictures before you... I did, you I did. Yeah. Yeah. So it was The Life Aquatic was the first one that you... Yes, but I, I knew his pictures and he, he used to come to the theater and I met with him and it's kind of interesting because I said... At one point I said, Wes, I'd love to work with you. And he said, yeah, well, you know, I, I've just cast this movie, Life Aquatic, and it's going to be quite a long process, and I'll see you in five years, basically. And then he called me a couple, a couple months later, and he said, someone dropped out. Who was that? <laughs> I'll, I won't give you the name, but I'll give you a little game. Uh, I give you some details and then you can figure it out, but I'm not going to say okay, yes or no. Okay, we'll do it that way. 
a European character actor who took another job for the money <laughs> and uh, and yeah I, I, I'm not going to give his name <laughs> the character you ended up playing Klaus Daimler he's a sort Klaus of German Daimler, he's a sort a of German blowhard isn't he who, yeah yep. beautiful role um and something, you know, and particularly when I was younger, touring a lot with the Wooster Group, we toured a lot in Germany. So I had a real feeling for the kind of myth of German efficiency. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and growing up in a very Germanic part of the United States, also I knew that as well. So I thought there was something very charming about that character, about... Uh, when you're working with Wes Anderson, you know, I think we can see, looking at it, that he's got a, a, a sort of very clear sense of what he... But how does he communicate that to you as an actor? How do you know what he wants you to do? Um, you know, he's very good at working with what you're, you're bringing to it. But I must say that the way he worked in Life Aquatic is very different than the way he worked, like, in uh, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, for example. Um, because Life Aquatic, there was, there was much uh, looser approach. He, he shot these very, very long shots, and he'd kind of fold different elements into it. He had the basic idea, and sometimes we'd work all day on choreographing and timing out for the camera and for the actors a shot that might last s- several minutes and had lots of working pieces. If you think of his movies, if you know his movies, uh, I'm sure you can imagine this. Um, we'd work on it all day and then we'd shoot at the end of the day and if we got one take that was good we'd go home (laughs) or we'd keep on working until we got it but no coverage Um, and that was very different than uh, Grand Budapest where it was very precise to me that sounds awful when I'm like all of this effort just no, for one shot it's wonderful you know it's, it's like some people think wow you know he's, he's got such a specific idea wouldn't that be suffocating where am I being creative the truth is and I think this has a lot to do with my background in the Wooster group I, I started out as a, a, a really task oriented actor and what I love more than anything else is knowing what I have to do and try to do it, doing it with a kind of grace and a kind of openness that something happens to me while I'm doing it. Just like an athlete, it doesn't sound very sexy to run from here to there. But, you know, in that running from here to there, there's a lot going on. So uh, sometimes it's good to have a very strong uh, structure, very strong uh, actions. And you've just been working with him on his latest picture, The French Dispatch, which I understand is just wrapped in Angoulême in France, yes. and not a lot is known about it at the moment. What would you like to tell us about it? Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of 
George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool and I love the dance piece Sutra inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I'm sort of in the dark too, yeah. because, <laughs> no, just because, to be honest, uh, I was very happy to be there, but it's, it's uh, essentially a cameo. Okay. I worked a couple of days, but very happily. Mm. I'm looking forward to this one because it's about journalists. No? Ah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, very much. Yeah. You were talking before about your accent, and uh, so you're from the Midwest, from Wisconsin, uh, and you grew Where up... Where we talk like Fargo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of like that. You yeah. know, hey guys, let's go down to the store and watch them unload the trucks, eh? <laughs> A little bit like that. And all my sisters, I have five sisters, and they all have high voices and they all do sing song. I love them, but boy. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a lot of brothers and sisters, don't you? Yeah. Eight, I believe. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, so your father is a surgeon and your mother is a nurse. Yes. It's a big family yeah. in, in the Midwest of America. Was it quite a sort of conservative environment that you grew up yeah, in? Yeah, they were basically, Nick, uh, you know, Eisenhower Republicans. Um, but then uh, I was toward the end of the family and I saw, you know, very much, because I was born in 55, so... As I was a teenager, I'd see all my brothers and sisters coming home from uh, university. And most of them went to the University of Wisconsin. And that was one of the hotbeds of student activity. So there were all these classic, you know, Christmas nightmarish scenes, you know, where they'd be discussing politics and, you know, my brothers and sisters would be coming back with, you know, off the pigs and stuff like that. <laughs> My parents were like, what? How, how did this happen? You know? So I was witness to that. And uh, I guess that what the that what that told me is there's a bigger world out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, in 1978, no, 76, you ran away to join the theater and you arrived it's in New York much, City. Pretty much. I always felt like that. I mean, it was a good place to grow up. It was a, a like a a paper mill town of like 50,000 people. It's where it was Joe McCarthy's district. You know, Joe McCarthy from... Uh, Senator the, McCarthy of, yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah, of the House Senator of American McCarthy. Activities Committee. And it's also where Harry Houdini 
uh, grew up. Yeah. I think and he, he was Romanian. Too. But <laughs> yes, yeah. and a couple of times on yeah. talk shows, I can't go back to Appleton anymore yeah. because yeah, I've yeah. used that joke. Basically, <laughs> what was the greatest escape yeah. from Appleton? Yeah. You know. <laughs> and what was Houdini's greatest escape from yeah, Appleton? Yeah. That's it. <laughs> So I, I keep on going with this. It's like, <laughs> but so it, it, you, you know, you, you you've escaped from there and you've arrived in New York City in 1976, and that's where you became involved with the Worcester Group, uh, a sort of experimental theatre group, uh, which is known throughout the world, but which really does some very uh, very avant-garde and very um, genre-pushing types of uh, types of theatre. So um, uh, Elizabeth Leconte, who is the uh, who is your former partner and who is the, the uh, director of the theatre, in an interview with the New York in 2007, she described it, the early days of the Worcester Group as a French farce of exits and exits, a big, close, arty, eccentric, libidinous, extended family. Sounds like fun. Yeah. yeah. And and the joke is, when, when I went to New York, I had already done some... Uh, theater work, but not, uh, not extensive. Um, but I went there and I fully intended to try to be a commercial theater actor. But when I got there, I found myself always going downtown, you know, always going to loft performances, always seeing dance. I found myself being attracted to those people. And I, one of the things that I loved is I wasn't quite down with like an amateur aesthetic, but I was down with the fact that they weren't careerists. And they were living their lives like artists, <laughs> you know? And, and being from the Midwest, I suppose, and having the background that I did, this was very exciting to me. I liked being around these people. So I found myself kind of being less and less interested in pursuing a career path and just wanted to be with those people. So I started working very modestly at the Wooster Group, you know, doing carpentry and doing small roles. I fell in love with uh, the director. That you know, thickened the plot, certainly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a, I was there with them for 27 years, and it really shaped who I, who I am as an actor. I mean, it really formed who I was, who I am. And one of the significant things, it's always hard because I don't know what you know about the Worcester Group, for example. But, well, what, actually, but, why do you describe it for the, yeah, the well, uninitiated? It's hard to describe, but... Where it's at in the world, and I, I, looking back on it, what I think is interesting, that was a time in New York City. Remember, those are the days of New York City being bankrupt, Bad being dangerous. dangerous, rough, and it was, you know? And there was a huge movement of people just making things, and there was a cross-fertilization. Dancers were making films, filmmakers were making music, actors were dancing. It was all mixed up. And uh, the Wooster Group was, in fact, not a company of actors and people that had been trained in the theater. They were architects, uh, poets, musicians, uh, seamstresses. It was people that um, weren't trained, weren't on a career path, and they just came together. And we, I mean, what they made was pretty weird, wasn't it? So, for instance... Not weird. In, well, in 1984... It, was, it wasn't weird to us. <laughs> in 1984, <laughs> in a play called LSD, Just the High Points, that was a mashup of Arthur Miller's The Crucible with the writings of Timothy Leary and members recounting their own experiences of acid trips. <laughs> um, that sounds kind of weird to me. <laughs> out of context, that does sound kind of weird, but... Uh, <laughs> No, we had, we had unusual uh, rehearsal 
uh, techniques, for example. (laughs) (laughs) For that show, um, uh, we dropped acid and rehearsed a scene from The Crucible. And as you can imagine, it didn't go so well. But, (laughs) But we recorded it. We filmed it. And when we played back the tape, it was interesting enough that we time-coded it and then reproduced that as part of the performance and turned it basically into a dance, second by second. And, and the, the, the task was to be as truthful to the time-code and to recapture the timing of these things happening. And it was fascinating from an actor's point of view because we were all at a long table rehearsing and uh, it would be like you'd have a rhythm in your head and you knew when you did that with your hand, I knew two seconds later I would touch that and then I had three seconds to put my hand on my head and then I'd look up and then I'd say a line. It was crazy. It was crazy. It really broke it down into a series of actions. And that was real pleasurable uh, to perform uh, and interesting. Yeah, I mean, it became a real mainstay of experimental theatre in New York for, for many years. It, we, we have had a bit of it here in London. You came through the Barbican, you used oh, to do Lyft and whatever. Uh, well, but in Europe, it was known as the plays that everyone walked out of. So once again... Elizabeth Leconte to the I New Yorker. I know that. To the New Yorker. Well, Elizabeth Leconte said no, to the New Yorker, the Germans walked out of the plays about women, the French walked out of the plays about men, the Scots and the Spaniards and the Austrians walked out, period. <laughs> She's talking about after yeah, I yeah. left. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, what's that like um, when you're in a production? No, listen, we were pretty reviled for many years, and what was interesting is it was really through through uh, European co-productions that supported us, mostly from Germany, Belgium, France. Uh, A little bit, we performed some. There was a period where we performed at places like the Tramway in Glasgow, which was a great uh, venue once upon a time. Um, And we performed in London at um, the place that uh, Hitchcock used to, uh, Riverside Studios, you know. Funky place, but alive, you know. Uh, Off the grid, but good places to perform. Um, but we were pretty much reviled and then Liz had the smart idea to not allow critics to come because they were writing so terribly about us. I can't get behind this one. But (laughs) (laughs) But listen, and so we did that for a little while and then we started basically making our reputation and our and our, you know, earning our keep, uh, making our nut in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, uh, touring internationally and then it was then that people in the states started seeing us in another context like in Paris you know at, at the Beaubourg or someplace like that and, and see us received very well and then miracle of miracles when we came home now all of a sudden they embraced us so it was interesting to see that So, I mean, through the 80s, you're doing a lot of this very crazy theater in Europe and in America, but your big break comes in 1987 with uh, Platoon. Ah, Yes, that was important, but uh, when you talk about big break, uh, you know, the big break is the first thing you do. Uh, You know, is is Catherine Bigelow coming and seeing me at a show at the Wooster Group and asking me to do a movie with her. That was 
the initial big break to my mind. I mean, but this one got you an Oscar nomination and work with Oliver Stone. That's true. That's yeah. true. It it raised it raised the profile uh, certainly. Mm. Uh, uh, Oliver Stone is known as uh, one of the sort of maddest directors to work with. What was that like putting uh, Platoon together with him? It was great. I mean, I worked with him twice, uh, most notably on Platoon. And I remember when I met him, I thought, wow, I've never met anyone in the movie business like this. Because uh, he, he didn't suffer fools, and, and he had a personal story to tell, and he was going to do anything to tell it. And he was connected to that story. So he got a bunch of kids that had, weren't very experienced, and we went to the Philippines, and they threw us in the jungle, and they got some hardcore military people, many of them veterans of that war, to train us, and we learned how to do things. We learned how to, you know, set an ambush. We learned how to land navigate. We learned how to use those weapons, and then we shot this movie. So it was very, um, it was very special, very particular, uh, and I, I loved doing it. Um, and as far as him being a strong personality, I don't know. Uh, it never occurred to me. I mean, he likes to turn up the heat, and sometimes he, he likes to push people. I don't normally respond to that, um, and he probably never tried it with me. He probably has a good sense. Um, but uh, sometimes he felt like if he turned up the heat and he pushed someone, uh, that they would go to a place that they wouldn't go normally, and then when that happened, they'd thank him. <laughs> but I never, I never liked that too much uh, when, when people, you know, ride actors, push them. He was a Vietnam vet himself. He oh, went yeah. twice, I believe. Say again? I believe he went twice to Vietnam uh, in active I forget, service. I forget, yes. Yeah. And so the, the sort of process of making you go through that... Oh, he had a huge stake in it, you know, and... and not only as actors, but you wanted to honor that, you know? You were telling his story. Also, there were other people there. Uh, uh, Captain Dale Dye. Um, and uh, we got their stories in our head, and we tried to... Of course, we're not soldiers, we're not... But we did the best we could to try to uh, tell that story. And in America itself, that film had a huge impact and actually really changed the way that people thought about I think Vietnam so. vets. I think so, because really. I'm involved, you never know the truth, you know. <laughs> but, um, yes, uh, it, you know, people started talking about their nightmarish personal experiences, where before they, they wouldn't dare, uh, just because there was so much shame involved. And this was not a flag raiser. It wasn't talking down the people, the soldiers that served there, or the political situation specifically, that just introduced what an incredibly um, difficult task they had and, and how, how much uh, waste there was. I mean, as, a, as an actor, that must be a, like a wonderful feeling to have taken part in something which had a real sort of social impact, like... That. It was, yes. Yeah. Mm. Another difficult director you've worked with is Lars von Trier. Um, a, great, and a great director. 
his, so you've done a couple of his pictures, but Antichrist is probably the one which, uh, in, in which you had the largest role. It's just you and Charlotte Gansborg, really, yeah. uh, in, uh, in that picture. Uh, once again, that was a very controversial movie when that came out. Right. Yeah, it's a strong movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it, it dealt with a lot of taboo subjects. Um, and I, I always think it's funny that he was charged with being a misogynist where he always takes the woman's point of view um, in his movies and this movie is very much about for me anyway it's very much about the, the difficulty of a woman you know well there's many things but one of the strong things is you know sexuality and motherhood and 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 also there's stories about um, you know there's themes of of magic and things that we don't understand and kind of a pragmatic approach represented by my character. What's that like when the picture comes out and then it, every, it, it goes crazy and you, you know, the, the people are arguing about it and fighting about it and you've got to face difficult questions in interviews. Do you like being in those kind of movies or, or, and that kind of the, uh, the outrage that they cause or you'd rather do a bit of a quieter one and have a bit of an easier ride. Listen, I think there was outrage just because it's a strong movie and it's um, going to, uh, as I said, it, it's dealing with some very taboo subjects, but I think they're taboo subjects dealt in a very beautiful way and if people were smarter, they would just smile and love it. <laughs> no, I, I, the, point, the point is I don't get any particular pleasure out of controversy. For example, Last Temptation of Christ was a beautiful movie, I thought, and was a great experience for me, and it broke my heart a little bit to see that its, its reception was very overshadowed by uh, a debate about the movie, uh, mostly by people that hadn't seen it. Well, exactly. Well, so maybe if we could go back to that in, in 1999, the release of the movie, and it was, there was a big sort of... Um as you say, people who hadn't seen the movie were already getting warmed up uh, for it. And then on August the 13th, 1989, on the, um, in the New York Times, it says, after a month of protests and angry rallies by groups that consider the movie blasphemous, Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ opened today to long lines and sold-out theatres. There was a statement from Mother Teresa who said, Our Blessed Mother Mary will see that this film is removed from your land. Uh, Mother Angelica called it sacrilegious. Uh, Catholic and Greek Orthodox bishops they weighed in, the head of the American Family Association said anyone who shows it in their movie theatre we're going to put you on a blacklist for a year and a cinema in Paris that was showing it was actually firebombed and Where are all these people uh, when there's uh, slasher movies and porn you know shown <laughs> this is a movie about spirituality well, it is uh, it, definitely. And it, I mean, it sh the the thing that people really got in a flap about was the fact that it's a movie. It shows um, Jesus, who you play as a fallible human character, and it was the lust, I think, that really got them. Put him over the top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he had other, really he had, got he, them there. <laughs> but he had other. He had other real human, um, not yes. failings, but uh, complexities to his character, didn't he? I think so. I think so, and you know, I, I didn't, and I knew there was, when the novel came out, there was some controversy, but we were approaching this in such a sincere, thoughtful way, particularly Marty, 
uh, uh, Martin Scorsese that I didn't anticipate there being a problem. I think it was, it was at a point, particularly in America, I can't talk about other places. I can't talk about Mother Teresa, but uh, <laughs> she had a hands full. Um, but uh, in America, it was a moment where the religious right needed something to rally around. And uh, they kind of organized their agenda around this movie. So it became, a, a, you know, a pulpit uh, for them to uh, preach from. So it really wasn't about the movie. If they saw the movie, in fact, you know, many places with time, particularly in Catholic countries, uh, the movie's finally shown and, and been accepted even by, you know, uh, the, the Catholic... Uh, by Catholic organizations. So, what, so Martin Scorsese, you knew him already before you did that, that picture? I knew his movies, yeah. but I didn't know him. Uh-huh. I didn't know him, no. Yeah, and when... It's, Out did, of the blue. Did you just go to think, oh, I fancy reading for Jesus? How did it work? Uh, you know, you? <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, the funny part is um, everybody and their brother... I mean, I'm working in the theater and I'm doing movies here and there, you know? Um, but my identity still is I'm a movie, I'm a theater actor. That's what I'm doing day to day. And I remember everybody and their brother had auditioned for this movie, and they never even asked to see me, and I never went in on it. And they actually even tried to make it, but it fell apart, Uh, and then they went to casting again and auditioned more people. They, uh, they auditioned many, many, many people. And I just thought, well, they aren't interested in me. I let it go. And I, I also must say, at the, at the time, I thought, I know, you know, he was going to be a priest and all that, and I know his movies, but really, he's going to do a period movie about Jesus, you know? I thought, wow, that's strange. I wasn't attracted to it. And then... Uh, One day, I had come back from a movie that wasn't very satisfying. There were lots of difficulties, and I, I came back to the States and was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta get back to the theater, you know? And I was teaching in a place in uh, Massachusetts and staying very modestly at like a bed and breakfast kind of place. And there was only one phone, and the people that ran the bed and breakfast called me up and said, Willem, Willem, there's someone on the phone for you. <laughs> And it was like my agent said, uh, Marty Scorsese wants to see you tomorrow. And I said, really, about what? And uh, he, they said, Last Temptation of Christ. And I said, yeah, what role? And they said, idiot, no, he wants to, you, to see you for Jesus. And I thought, <laughs> that's strange. And I went to New York, I read the script, I loved it, and I, I said, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. I had, you know, I was prejudiced in my imagination about what this movie was because I didn't know the novel. And when I read it, I said, now I know why he wants to do, me to do this. And I loved it. It was one of uh, the best experiences I've had as far as total immersion, a lot of responsibility. Um, you know, the world really dropped away. We're in Morocco, no trailers, nothing. We were out there. And uh, we were working fast because it was a low-budget movie, um, but he had it planned very well. We had limited equipment, limited time, and I think that was good because it kept us away from 
you know, the pageantry or gilding the lily. It was very essential. In fact, before we started it, the one thing he suggested that I looked at was uh, Gospel According to Matthew, the Pasolini. Because he, uh, that he was the model. In another movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's another yeah, story. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it was a great experience. And what's that like? So you, obviously I can tell just from you talking about it, it was an incredible experience on set and you must be so satisfied and, and energized at the not for the, the reasons end. you think. Not because you're playing Jesus, because you're not thinking about that. No, I'm just, but just seriously. I mean, you can tell talking to you in terms of the creative process, it must have been a really satisfying and enriching process. So you're so happy that you've wrapped the film, but then comes this huge firestorm of controversy. What's that like psychologically to deal with? Ah, that's a big question in a funny way. And I, I don't recall. I probably blocked it. Um, you know, when you do the movie no matter how much you love it, you have to let it go a little bit. And some movies you continue, you know, when you're in the editing room and that sort of thing, particularly as I get older and I collaborate like with Abel, I'm very close with him in post-production, Abel Ferrara, who I've worked with a lot lately. But normally when I'm done rapping and when I'm done shooting, I go off and make room for something else. So then when the movie comes out, it's like starting a whole something else. You're trying to recall what that experience was. You're trying to support the movie because if you like it, you particularly you want it to be seen. So they're two different things. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. Part two of this event will be available as our next episode. Subscribers can access both episodes now. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or on Twitter at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com 